U.S. military exercises off of Guam, and more naval assets are ordered to the Middle East. All that and more today, October 24th, 2023. Good morning, early birds. I'm Zimone Perez, and this is the Early Bird Brief, produced by Defense News and Military Times. First up, the number of attempts to strike U.S. troops has increased sharply as the U.S. moves assets to support Israel in its war against Hamas. The Pentagon on Monday announced that troops in Syria had shot down two more drones near Al-Tamp garrison. That brings the total number of confirmed attacks on U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria to four over the past week. White House spokesperson John Kirby said the U.S. believes Iran is playing a role. We know Iran continues to support Hamas and Hezbollah. And we know that Iran is closely monitoring these events and in some cases actively facilitating these attacks and spurring on others who may want to exploit the conflict for their own good or for that of Iran. We know Iran's goal is to maintain some level of deniability here, but we're not going to allow them to do that. We also are not going to allow any threat to our interest in the region to go unchallenged. A senior defense official told reporters the Pentagon is still compiling a list of recent attacks to share. And over the weekend, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin ordered the Eisenhower Carrier Group to move into the Middle East. For more on this, Navy Times editor Jeff Zuzulowitz joins the episode today. So Jeff, the Eisenhower Carrier Strike Group was ordered to the Middle East over the weekend. Could you give us some more details about what exactly that means? Yeah, it was a, a busy weekend to say the least. First off, on Saturday, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin put out a brief statement indicating that the Dwight D. Eisenhower Carrier Strike Group would be heading to the Middle Eastern waters of U.S. Central Command. The Ike Strike Group is is based out of Norfolk, Virginia. It was initially thought that the Ike would be joining the Gerald R. Ford Carrier Strike Group in the eastern Mediterranean Sea off of Israel and Gaza, where the Ford and its support ships currently are. But Austin announced Saturday that No, in fact, the Ike and its support ships will be heading to the Middle East. This is the first time that a U.S. aircraft carrier has operated in those Middle Eastern waters since the end of the Afghanistan war in 2021. And it just really goes to show that no matter how much the Pentagon or U.S. policymakers want to shift the U.S. military away from the Middle East to focus on things like China or Russia, the adversary always has a say, as uh, some wonks like to say. And that's where we find ourselves, basically. Uh, We don't know exactly where the Ike and its destroyers and its cruiser will be heading particularly, but they are heading towards waters that will put them, you know, pretty, pretty close to Iran. In addition to that, uh, Austin also announced this weekend that uh, multiple Patriot missile batteries and other missile assets are going to be placed in the region. All these moves are happening because U.S. leaders have expressed concerns that the ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas could turn into a broader regional conflict if Iran got involved, which basically backs and and supplies Hamas, or if other militant groups such as Hezbollah and Lebanon were to get involved. uh, It would just take this conflict up to a a whole nother level. So sending the Ike to the Middle East with its support ships, part of that whole deterrent strategy, um, whereas U.S. leaders hope we put these assets there, maybe, you know, these adversaries will think twice about trying anything funny. In addition, this weekend, Austin noted that an undisclosed number of additional U.S. troops are being put on basically high alert to be ready to deploy uh, pretty quickly as needed. 
Last week, the Pentagon announced that 2,000 troops will be put into such a status. And so we've got more troops kind of getting ready to roll if needed. Uh, you know, they haven't been ordered to go anywhere, but they're kind of on a heightened uh, alert to go if they're needed. And what happens next, Simone, we we just don't know. You know, this this whole conflict has changed and evolved very quickly just this month since the October 7th attacks against Israel. You know, just a few weeks before that, you had White House officials noting how the Middle East was quieter than it had been in decades. And like we've reported before, there hasn't been a carrier there since 2021. And during the height of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, there was always at least one carrier on strike uh, on station rather in the CENTCOM AOR. So it just goes to show you that things can evolve and change very, very quickly in that part of the world. Yeah, and there have been many developments in the region and in turn, many U.S. responses. And U.S. coalition forces had to defend against attacks by other militias in Iraq and Syria. Of course, we also all know about the Israel and Hamas war. So what are U.S. defense officials saying about the stark increase of military activity in the region? Are any other assets being considered? It is important to note that before Austin announced the Eisenhower going to the Middle East and some additional assets, uh, last Thursday, the Navy destroyer Kearney uh, shot down a bevy of cruise missiles and drones that were launched by Iran-allied Houthi rebel forces in Yemen that day. A CNN reported this weekend that that was actually a nine-hour operation for the men and women aboard the USS Kearney as the ship was steaming in the Red Sea. So that is kind of you know the precursor to Austin's announcement over this weekend. But along with the Ike and its carrier strike group, Uh, Austin also announced that a Terminal High Altitude Area Defense, or THAAD, missile battery, as well as an unspecified number of Patriot missile battalions were also being sent to the region. Austin also announced that he was placing, quote, an additional number of forces on prepare-to-deploy orders as part of prudent contingency planning to increase their readiness and ability to quickly respond as required, end quote. What that basically means is that an unspecified additional number of troops will be put on kind of a high alert standby mode so that if things do pop up or pop off in a worse way, those troops can be ready to go very quickly. You saw this kind of rapid mobilization uh, during the chaos of the end of the Afghan war in the summer of 2021 as well. Now, how many troops Austin is putting on this additional standby alert remains unclear, and he didn't specify it in his statement over the weekend. But last week, the Pentagon announced that 2,000 troops had already been put on this high alert for quick deployment if they were needed. Um, On the Air Force side, the Pentagon has already directed a bunch of additional fighter jet squadrons to the region as well. U.S. officials, including Defense Secretary Austin and Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, said this weekend that the United States is basically expecting Uh, the Israel-Hamas war to escalate through involvement by other Iranian proxies. We are concerned. Uh, In fact, we expect uh, that there's a likelihood of escalation, escalation by Iranian proxies directed against our forces, directed against our personnel. Uh, We are taking steps to make sure that we can effectively defend our people and respond decisively if we need to. And we saw that to a degree this past week Multiple bases in Iraq and Syria that house U.S. personnel came under attack by 
unidentified drones and unspecified number of drones. The Pentagon reported minor injuries among U.S. personnel, but there was one contractor who suffered cardiac arrest and died during one of these attacks. So you can look at this buildup both as an, an, a move to def- deter Iran and deter its proxies, but also a move to ensure that if U.S. personnel come under significant attack, there are US, U.S. assets in the region ready to strike back as necessary. Thanks, Jeff. There are 2,500 personnel in Iraq and another 900 in Syria for counter-ISIS missions. In other news, a Defense Department assessment found that the Chinese military is struggling when a resource known as electromagnetic spectrum is contested. For more on this, C4ISR net reporter Colin Demarest joins the episode. So Colin, for a layman like myself, could you explain what the electromagnetic spectrum is and why it's so important? So simply put, it's the vast collection of energy or radiation in the universe. It has its ranges of frequencies, which are often depicted on those infographics you see with the different size waves. For the military, the spectrum is a critical resource. The spectrum enables communication, navigation, deception, and even weapons guidance. Electronic warfare is built upon that. Jamming and spoofing and the like can make an adversary's day much more difficult while also making yours that much easier. What's the name and the purpose of this assessment where the DOD disclosed China's struggle with electronic warfare capabilities? The Pentagon included the assessment in the annual China Military Power Report. The document, which is mandated by Congress, gives the public a really in-depth look at the People's Liberation Army, or PLA, and Beijing's larger modernization goals. Uh, U.S. defense officials also speak with reporters during its rollout to take specific questions and offer additional context. Part of this story about Chinese EW and its shortfalls is sourced from those conversations. Yeah, and so are there any other major items in the China military power report this year? So there's there's really a lot, honestly. Uh, if you look at just the table of contents, it hits on Chinese strategy, the country's global ambitions, the PLA's forces and weaponry, and even exchanges or communications between Washington and Beijing. Uh, My colleague Noah Robertson, our Pentagon reporter, earlier this month put out a piece regarding the Chinese nuclear stockpile using the military power report as the basis. I think that's definitely worth checking out. Also on your radar for today, off the U.S. territory of Guam this month, U.S. and South Korean navies completed an anti-submarine warfare exercise. Navy Times reporter Diana Stancy joins the episode to discuss the strategic importance of that exercise. So, Diana, what did this exercise entail more specifically? Yes. So the U.S. uh, teamed up with the Republic of South Korea's Navy, and they conducted this uh, theater anti-submarine warfare off the coast of Guam. And what they were trying to do with this is primarily focus on improving submarine tracking and um, engagement. So this comes amid increased concerns about North Korea's nuclear program. So that's why it's particularly relevant. However, this exercise, um, it has been taking place every other year since 2007 when it initially launched. So um, specifically, the um, assets that were involved in this exercise included um, the U.S. Navy's fast attack submarine Topeka and uh, South Korea's diesel electric submarine Jungji. So they worked together for this exercise um, with maritime patrol and uh, reconnaissance aircraft from um, the U.S. Navy and South Korea's Navy. Yeah, and looking at the broader picture, how does this exercise fit into the 
larger relationships and strategic challenges in the Indo-Pacific. Yes. So as we've seen in the past uh, several weeks in particular, the U.S. has shown quite a bit of support for um, its allies in the region. Um, Just earlier this month, the aircraft carrier Ronald Reagan um, went to Busan for a port visit, and that um, came on the heels of a trilateral maritime exercise uh, with South Korea and Japan. Um, and then more recently, um, over the weekend, the U.S., South Korea, and Japan, they kicked off um, their very first trilateral aerial exercise near the Korean Peninsula. So um, that exercise in particular included um, a nuclear-capable B-52 bomber from the U.S. and then um, accompanied by fighter jets from South Korea and Japan. So all of these kind of events um, and signs of support from the U.S. to its allies in the region coincide with some recent developments that have increased concerns regarding North Korea's nuclear program. In particular, right now, the fear is that North Korea is seeking to obtain advanced weapons technologies from Russia and that, in turn, North Korea will then provide Russia with some ammunitions to refill its conventional arms stores, which, since the start of the war with Ukraine have been depleted. So um, these concerns are particularly relevant um, as North Korean leader Kim Jong-un met with uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin last month in Russia, and uh, together they inspected key weapons-making facilities. And now here are some other stories that we're hearing chirps about. A former National Security Agency employee from Colorado pleaded guilty yesterday to trying to sell classified information to Russia. Army veteran Jare Sebastian Dalk is scheduled to be sentenced in April. A Sydney, Australia court postponed an extradition hearing for a former U.S. military pilot accused of illegally training Chinese aviators until May. Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is scheduled to visit Washington this week to meet with President Joe Biden. The two are expected to discuss a defense partnership between Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States. And the office of Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan said he submitted a protocol for Sweden's admission into NATO to Turkey's parliament for ratification. That brings the Nordic country a step closer to membership in the military alliance. And on this day in history, in 1951, President Harry Truman finally proclaimed the nation's war with Germany was officially over. Fighting had ended six years earlier in 1945. That's it for us this morning. To get more top stories and breaking news, go to defensenews.com EBB to subscribe to the Early Bird Brief newsletter. Please give us a like, rating, and a comment wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to follow us on social media at defense underscore news and at military times. The Early Bird Brief is hosted and produced by me, Zimone Z. Perez. Today's episode featured stories by Megan Myers, Jeff Zulowitz, Colin Demarest, and Diana Stancy. Our editor-in-chief is Mike Bruce. Have a great day.